Hello and welcome. The following interview was recorded live with a call-in audience as part of a homeschooling how-to marathon hosted by homeschool.com. These how-to classes cover eclectic homeschooling, Christian homeschooling, homeschooling through high school, homeschooling the special needs child, you name it. For the complete list of homeschooling how-to classes, please visit www.homeschool.com and click on the button on the left that says Homeschooling How-To Classes. These call-in classes are free, so please subscribe to homeschool.com's e-newsletter and we will notify you of the next live event. Thank you. So without further ado, uh, we'll get started. Uh, my name is Rebecca Kokendurfer. I am so honored to be the of this homeschooling how-to marathon. I'm the senior editor and co-founder of homeschool.com. And with us for the next time, uh, next hour is um, an author and homeschooling speaker that I have been wanting to uh, speak with and interview, it seems, forever. I have read her book, The Classical Mind, The Well-Trained Mind, A Guide to Classical Education at Home, cover to cover, and I swear I really did. That's a big, thick book. So I'm very honored to be able to introduce to you Susan Weiss-Bauer. Now, Susan's parents taught her at home for most of elementary and middle school, all of high school. She entered college at 17 as a presidential scholar and national merit analyst and finished her B.A. in five semesters with a major in English, a minor in Greek, and a summer spent studying 20th century theology as a visiting student at Oxford. A very, very impressive credential. Uh, I, I think she's a genius. Uh, she and her mother uh, co-authored the book, The Well-Trained Mind, A Guide to Classical Education at Home. And, of course, uh, classical education has become very, very uh, popular in homeschooling, and many parents are interested in this method because it has turned out some of the greatest minds of our time. So we have Susan for the next hour. Uh, I'll be asking her uh, some questions. We'll have a nice discussion. And then I'll uh, hope to open up the call so that you can speak with Susan and ask her your own questions. So, Susan, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. I can tell from our records we have 98 people on the call right now. Okay. I know that people are very interested in learning more about the classical approach to education. Mm -hmm. Now, you uh, were homeschooled yourself. Yes. And you have three sons and a daughter. Yes, that's right. Do you homeschool your own children? I do. Uh, my husband and I do, I should say. Oh, that's excellent. So yeah. you really are a homeschooling expert as well. Well, um, <laughs> I, nobody wants to be an expert no, about homeschooling, but yeah. No, well, I, I so, so much of um, what I talk about when I you know write and do conferences comes from my experience of having been homeschooled. My oldest son is thirteen; he's going into seventh grade, eighth grade, and so he's in his seventh grade, and so I'm gaining more experience on the parenting side as well. Well, Susan, that beeping sound that you hear is a good sound. It's the sound of more people coming on the call. Okay. So don't let that disturb you at all. All right. But, I, but I'd like to talk with you about um, why did you choose classical education for your own children? I wanted to give them an education which would teach them how to think. Um, I wanted them to know that learning was not something you just do in 12 years from age 6 to age 18, but something that goes on your whole life. And there's a great emphasis on classical education in continuing to learn, continuing to think, continuing to analyze your whole life. I wanted them to be able to enjoy reading. I wanted them to write well. I have taught uh, writing and literature at the College of William & Mary in Virginia for 
the last nine years, I guess now, and have just been increasingly frustrated, as have most of my colleagues, with the, the declining writing and expression skills of our incoming freshmen. And I see them at such a disadvantage, not able to express themselves well in writing. I, I didn't want my children to, uh, to have that same disadvantage. And so I wanted to take charge of that myself. Well, Susan, uh, I'm going to ask you another question. And while you're discussing that, I'm going to go on to the operator because we've reached maximum capacity for this call. Okay. So I'm going to ask them to open up some more lines because people are getting uh, turned away now. I don't want them to miss a word. So um, while I'm doing that, could you talk about what are the benchmarks of classical education and how is it different from other methods? All right, well, I'll give you the very short version of this. Uh, classical education is not really primarily a matter of learning Greek and Latin. It's really a matter of two central distinctives. One, this emphasis on reading, on writing, on talking, on thinking, rather than on mastering a certain body of knowledge. The emphasis in classical education is on the process of learning how to think, learning how to gather information and analyze it and express your opinion about it. And that leads to the second emphasis of classical education, which is this three-part division of studies so that when children are younger, you're concentrating on just feeding them information, doing their basic skills, filling their mind with the things they're going to need to know. As they move on into that middle school age, you begin to teach them to think critically. You begin to teach them the basics of logic. You begin to teach them how to analyze for truth or falsehood. And then as they move on into high school, you shift your emphasis again so that they begin to express their opinions about what they're reading. And these three stages really build on each other. Young children are very good at absorbing information, but they're not really very critical thinkers. Middle school children want to criticize. They want to analyze. They want to know whether things are true or false. And what you are doing in these first two stages is you are equipping them to be articulate and to be passionate and to have opinions when they're in high school and to be able to express those opinions. So the emphasis on classical education is really on this process of learning. How is this different from other methods? Um, well, I, which particular method? I mean, there, there are a number of methods that use elements of classical education in them. Uh, Charlotte Mason was a classical educator. Um, uh, classical education is what a traditional liberal arts education was, um, you know, say before 1940 or 1950. Um, I don't know. If you want to want to throw a particular method at me, I could probably point out some of the differences. Well, we had a chance to uh, talk with John Taylor Gatto last mm -hmm. week, and he talked about how at some of the elite private schools in the country, they're taught a different type of a thinking process than we are in our pipe of public schools. Yes, well, so, so far as I know, and I, I did not get to hear that interview, but so far as I know that he is talking about this process of learning how to think and analyze and then to use rhetoric to express your opinion. Yet it, sound, it sounds like this is what he's talking mm -hmm. about. Yes. So what is the well-trained mind about? Well, the well-trained mind explains this basic pattern of education, and then for each grade in each subject, gives very specific recommendations for the how-tos. How you try to meet your educational goal, whether it's absorption or critical thinking or self-expression, in each of the subjects in each of the grades, and we also make very specific curricular recommendations. And our goal with this was not to tie parents to any one set of books or even one set of methods, but rather to start to give parents a way to um, sort of cut through the enormous tangle of homeschool materials that are now available. There's so many out there. And I get the feeling, especially after a summer of going to homeschool conventions, as I've just finished doing, that a lot of parents pick materials by walking through the convention hall and thinking, oh, this looks good, I hope it works. 
And in order to really pick materials well, you need to have some idea of where you're going. You need to know, what is my goal in 11th or 12th grade? What is the student supposed to look like when they get out of high school? That's the only thing that will really help you to choose your materials and to shape your homeschool program into some sort of coherent pattern. Otherwise, I think you run the risk of just sort of, um, you know, doing, doing a hit or miss, pick this, pick this, pick this. Maybe I'm covering all the bases. Maybe I'm not, but I'm not really sure. So the book was our attempt to begin to give parents a glimpse of that pattern so that then they could, you know, choose the materials themselves. When you were homeschooled by your parents, mm -hmm. did they homeschool you in this classical style? They did, because when my mother took us out of school, I guess this was in 73, um, not too many people were homeschooling, you know, and there weren't any support groups, there weren't conventions, and she wrote to all of the private schools that she respected and asked them to describe their curricula. And the schools that she respected were those that were still using this classical method, a lot of parochial schools, very well-regarded private schools. And so she created her curriculum according to this method. That is what she wanted us to have. Well, let me, let's, let me tell our callers a little bit about your adult accomplishments as well. Uh, you know that uh, Susan is the co-author of The Well-Trained Mind, but let me tell you also she went on to earn a Master of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, she added Hebrew and Aramaic to her languages. In 1994, she completed the MA in English Language and Literature at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Her concentrations were in translation theory, 17th century devotional poetry, and psalm paraphrase in the Tudor period. Since 1994, Susan has taught writing and American literature at William and Mary, where she has also done doctoral work in American studies with concentrations in history of American evangel is that evangelicalism? Evangelicalism. Evangelicalism and the American novel. And I say this because um, your accomplishments are quite impressive. Can you list some other uh, people that we might know about who were educated in the classical style? Well, I think a lot of the homes a lot of the authors that homeschoolers tend to look up to were because they were educated in an earlier era. You think of someone like Charlotte Mason think of someone like C.S. Lewis, who obviously went through the classical education. If you, if you read his autobiography, you can see very clearly how he was led through the, these, uh, these, these three steps. Um, the, the, the writers of the early 20th century that so many homeschoolers respect benefited from this type of education because it was, um, it was the pattern for both private and public education until progressive education began. Uh, around the turn of the century and a little later, and I'm sure John Taylor Gatto had to say about that already. Um, but th this is trying to recapture an older pattern and to adapt it um, for the next century. Can you give us an idea? What would a typical day be like for a homeschooling family who is using the classical method? You know, I don't think there is a typical day for a homeschooling family, um, no matter what method they're using. We are all doing this because we are trying to shape our lives in the pattern that seems healthy to us. And everyone's families and children are so different. I mean, I can tell you that when in, in our house, um, I tend to, you know, get the kids up in the morning, fix them breakfast, spend probably two and a half or three hours um, in the morning doing their schoolwork, their history, their Latin. I always make them do their Latin first because otherwise it falls off the agenda. Um, they're reading, they're writing, those liberal arts things that I am very passionate about. Early afternoon, my oldest son goes over to a neighbor's for tutoring and math. Then in the afternoons, usually my husband takes over so that I can do some of my writing. 
and he does their uh, he does their science with them. He does their phys ed. He does their spelling and some of the other subjects. But that's that's what works for us. I I would think that what would be a constant for homeschooling families who are using the classical classical method is that the children would be spending a lot of time reading, a lot of time reading sometimes on their own. Sometimes it doesn't look like you're interacting with them a great deal during certain parts of the day because you're teaching them how to learn for themselves. And the students are also spending time writing, even if very briefly, about each of the, the subjects that they're, that they're learning, again, because of this emphasis on, on reading and writing. Of course, if you have a younger child, it's very easy to start out in the classical method because they can just kind of follow the suggestions in the book. Mm-hmm. But what do you do if you're starting in the middle or starting with an older child? Well, whenever you're starting with an older child, you have to, I think, um, go back and back up and perhaps do remedial work in the skill areas where that child may be lacking certain skills. So if that child is uncomfortable with mathematical concepts or with mathematical operations, if that child is a reluctant writer, a poor speller, has no grasp on grammar, doesn't know how to structure a composition, if that child is perhaps not an eager reader, those are things that you have to go back and work on. So even with an older child, you may find yourself going back and working on some of those skills, which are more, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and work your way on back up. In terms of the content areas, you know, well, what history are we studying? What what literature are we reading? There's not a tremendous need to go back and sort of fill in the spaces there. You concentrate on, on building up their basic skills. Once you put a child's basic skills into place, you'll be amazed at the amount of self-education that goes on. My mother always says that, we educated ourselves, and what she means by that is that she spent a tremendous amount of time with us, you know, in the sort of under 10 and then on into maybe 11 and 12 a little bit, building those basic skills of reading and writing and being able to do mathematical operations and being able to think critically, and we spent in our late junior high and high school years a tremendous amount of time working on our own. She directed us, but we knew how to read, we knew how to write, we knew how to think, that is the point at which real learning begins because the skills are now out of the way. They've become tools. They're not something you have to stop and struggle with. They're now tools that can be exercised on the content materials. So this is what you do. You go back, you fill in those skills um, that are lacking, and you don't say to yourself, oh, well, you know, this is so basic. I've got to get this kid onto more advanced material because unless you lay the foundation of the basics, you can't go onto more advanced material. You would be building on a foundation that's missing, and that's never a good strategy. About how many hours a day does it take to homeschool your child in this classical method? Depends on the child, depends on the age, <laughs> depends on the family. I mean, I can tell you how much time my kids spend. My rising 13-year-old probably spends mm, four and a half hours a day or so directly on task, probably another hour or so doing sort of peripheral things, you know, a little bit of extra reading, messing around with his computer programming. That time is um, concentrated time. That's time that he is really focused on what he's doing. Uh, that still gives him plenty of time to be a kid. What about uh, classical schooling when you have multiple age children, you have more than one child? Well, any kind of homeschooling with multiple age children is a little bit of a circus, um, especially if you know your youngest is three, which mine is. Um, you try to, I think, Order your day so that you can spend individual time with each child working on those skill areas again. But you combine your content areas. You know, you all do the same period of history. You all do the same science topic. 
wherever you can with the content areas, you combine the kids into a group. And that, you hope, gives you the freedom to devote a little more one-on-one -on -one time to their skill areas, which are something, you know, something that's much more difficult to combine. Now, and if you're me, they eat a lot of Cheerios and cookies and things while you're working with the other kids. I decided we could either we could either homeschool with you know four kids and do a good job, or we could avoid sugar, but we couldn't do both. So I am sort of of the shameless bribing uh, mentality when it comes to working with one child and keeping the other three occupied. Your book, um, The Well Trained Mind, is can be a bit intimidating because it's so thick. Oh, yeah, it's big. Yeah, do you have to homeschool in just this way, or is there kind of a simplified version of the classical method as well? I actually think, well, I mean, I should say to start with, nobody has to homeschool in any particular way. I think most people who say that they are classical schoolers are taking a pattern and adapting it. I mean, if you can't take a pattern and adapt it, what's the point of homeschooling? You might as well just, you know, put them in a classroom. Um, the flexibility is what is great about homeschooling. With a book like ours, uh, part of the reason why it's thick is because we're very specific. We're, you know, describe particular curricula in great detail. Whenever you're very specific, um, you run the risk of being accused of rigidity. And you know, people have to use this particular curriculum. Nobody has to use any of the curricula, you know, in the well-trained mind. The books that we describe we think are simple to use. Um, other parents may find them incredibly complicated and hate them. That's fine. I would hope that in the book what we've done is we've explained why we chose those curricula in enough detail so that parents can take the pattern and adapt it for themselves. That's that's the key, not being afraid uh, to adapt. I mean, I'm always saying at conferences, there are no classical education police. They're not going to come and drag you away if you don't do it exactly like we do. Nobody does it exactly the same. So not to be afraid to personalize it for your own family. Absolutely. Why do you divide the grammar, logic, and rhetoric stages the way that you do? Yeah, there are a number of different ways to do this. And again, um, there's nothing canonical about any of them. There are um, there are classical educators who we well I should let me tell you what we do for those who may not be aware we put the grammar stage as grades one through four the logic stage grades five through eight and the high school of rhetoric in nine through twelve you will find um, classical educators who talk about a sort of pre-grammar stage grades one through two and then they do the grammar stage a little later sort of like three through five. Then your logic stage is 6 through 8 or 6 through 9, rhetoric stage 10 through 12. The important thing to remember is that there is no one pattern that's going to work for every kid. Kids move from the grammar stage where they're very receptive but not very critical into the logic stage at different times. Not only do they do it at different times, but it's very common for a child to make the leap from grammar to logic in one subject but not in another. Um, Kids' brains are made so that, you know, they, they understand some better than others, and those are the subjects in which they're more likely to go into the logic stage. So any division of the stages, again, is something that you should uh, be flexible with. In our experience, that switch into the more critical way of thinking tends to happen around fourth and fifth grade. And I think that if you pull the grammar stage learning, which with its heavy uh, emphasis on rote learning and on repetition, much past fourth grade, you're really losing, you, you run the risk of losing the child's attention, losing their interest. They begin to get very impatient with repetition. They want to criticize. They want to think. Um, as far as the rhetoric stage then in high school, given the fact that we work within the American educational system and we have to keep transcripts, 
and colleges look at grades 9, 10, 11, and 12, it makes sense to me from a practical level to begin an advanced um, plan of study like our rhetoric stage study in ninth grade. It's just, it's useful. Also, I think ninth grade is about the earliest, really the earliest, that most kids are ready to tackle the classics. I know there are classical programs in a Veritas does this, um, that begin reading some of the classics, some of the ancients, the Odyssey, and so on in seventh grade. Some kids can do that. My experience is that most of them can't. Most seventh graders, if you give them the Aeneid or the Odyssey in the original, you know, the translated, not a paraphrased version, are going to be pretty backed off by that. Uh, I think it's better to better to leave it for a little bit later. Okay, so walk us through just some simple uh, descriptions. Uh, tell me, you know, what the grammar stand is, just to make it a little clearer. Um, well, I, I don't know. Do, do people? Well, okay, I can do this. Well, not um, everyone has read your book, and even if you have, it's kind of confusing. In other words, I understand that it's divided into three different parts, but it's still not clear in my mind you know, really what the grammar stage is and what the logic stage is and what the rhetoric stage is and why it's so important to to focus on certain skills at that particular stage. Well, the grammar stage has a couple of things about it that are important. One is that you don't require the child to think critically and analyze unless the child wants to do it. There are a lot of curricula that push critical thinking all the way back into those early years, into first, second, and third grade. And for many children... They are simply not ready to begin asking about their academic subjects. Why? Why is this the case? Why is this true? How do we know this? They are not ready to think deductively. So rather than using a curriculum which forces them to try to draw conclusions out, it is more developmentally appropriate to use a curriculum which tells them what they need to know, need to know and gives them an appropriate amount of drill and practice. The biggest difference in the classical curriculum between grammar and logic stages is that in the grammar stage, it's great to teach children by rote. Rote learning is good. There is no drill and kill. Children like drill. They like repetition. It makes them feel secure. It gives them a sense of accomplishment. I mean, think about how many times they repeat things, read the same book, watch the same television show, sing the same song. They like this repetition. That is the appropriate method of teaching. However, if you take that method of teaching where you're still drilling, memorizing, rote repetition, and then you pull it on into fifth or sixth grade, that's when kids start to turn off. So the real difference between the grammar and the logic stage, and this to me is the really important transition, is in the logic stage, you begin to ask children to find out information for themselves. You don't simply tell them what they need to know. You give them the book. You make them pull out themselves. You say to them, why do you think this is the case? What do you think will happen if we do this? That which is frustrating for them when they're younger is exhilarating for them when they're older because you're giving them some control over what they're learning. Okay, so let me make sure I understand this completely then. When the children are younger, that's when we want to emphasize memorizing facts. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then as they get older, so what age takes place for the the grammar again when we're giving them the presidents to memorize and the state capitals to memorize and just general facts and we're drilling them on that to make sure that they're solid in that. Okay. About what age range for that? Usually around grades one through four. The transition to the logic stage usually begins around fifth grade. Okay. And then suddenly when we go into this logic phase then, sorry, about the fifth grade, that's when we're asking them kind of why questions, why things work. Well, there's no suddenly about it. Um, no kid makes a transition from one developmental stage to the next suddenly. 
um, you will find that they grow impatient with repetition. The logic stage begins at the point where the child says to you, Mom, you already told me that. I already know that. Do we have to go over it again? Uh-huh. You see, they're beginning to be impatient with that repetition. you got to pay attention to that. However, when they say that, whenever it is, doesn't usually mean that they've got it down because kids who say that typically then, you know, go ahead and do it wrong anyway. It means that it's now time to give them a new method of learning. But it doesn't happen suddenly. It happens over a period of time. Some kids leap into the logic stage. Some you have to kind of drag kicking and screaming into the logic stage because it's really easier for them just to be fed facts. Depends on the child. Depends on their maturity level. Depends on whether they're a boy or girl. Depends on what their academic strengths are. So during the logic phase, we encourage them to to do what? To find information for themselves. We don't give them books to read and then simple comprehension questions afterward because that says to them, the important thing about what you're doing here is that you find certain bits of information and then spit them back out. Instead, we say to them, after they read a book, what did you think about the main character? What did the main character do? Why do you think the main character did that? What you're asking them to do is not simply to spit information back out, but to think about how what they're doing fits into other things that they're doing. They're reading a biography. You say to them, okay, who wrote that biography? Who was it about? How far apart did these people live in time? How do you think that author found out that information about that historical figure? Now let's think about that historical figure. Why did that historical figure do what they did? Why did Queen Elizabeth never marry? When they're in third grade, you say to them, Queen Elizabeth never got married. And they say, that's okay. Okay. She never got married. When they're in sixth grade, you say to them, why? Okay. Let's talk about this. Let's think about this. You begin to boot them out of that more passive, receptive state into a more active state. Excellent. Okay, so the logic phase generally starts around fourth or fifth grade, Mm -hmm. and what grade level does it generally generally transition into the next phase? Um, Well, the transition usually begins, I think, around eighth grade. Again, you have a transition. The transition from logic to rhetoric is one in which students begin to develop the maturity to really form opinions and express them. Um, In five through eight, I mean, it's not that they don't have opinions, but they still don't have the maturity not only to have an opinion, but to back it up with information. So you're you're going to see a transition as they go on into ninth grade where they are able to begin to put together the information that they've collected in logical order. That's a skill that they've learned during the logic stage. And to use that to support an opinion, to say, here's what I think about this historical figure, or here's what I think about this scientific theory, and here's why. Usually they begin to get the maturity to do this around the beginning of ninth grade. Okay, and so then they move into the rhetoric stage, Mm -hmm. and the rhetoric stage is where the student, what is the emphasis there? The emphasis is on self-expression, the emphasis is on forming an opinion and backing it up with evidence. Okay, so like you said about when you're studying history, having them come up with opinion about it and then having to support their opinion. Right. Kind of like debate, I assume? Yes, very much like debate. Well, debate is a rhetoric level skill. A high school student should rarely, in my opinion, be given the kind of assignment where they are simply summarizing and repeating information. Pretty much every composition, for example, that a high school student writes should have the purpose of proving a point and supporting that point with evidence. So what's the benefit if you're raising a child and you've you've gone through these three different phases, you end up with a graduate who can do what out in the real world? Who can collect information, 
who can analyze that information and can have an opinion about it. This is a skill that every adult should have. That most adults don't have it is incredibly obvious if you listen to any call-in talk show about politics, for example. People have opinions, but they don't know how to gather reliable information about you know, political, uh, political figures or about uh, policies. They don't know how to gather the information. They don't know how to analyze it to see whether it's accurate. And thus, they don't know how to support their opinions. You end up with a homeschooler who has a very solid uh, base of basic facts mm -hmm. and who knows how to find out what they don't know mm -hmm. and knows how to express themselves in speaking and in writing in a very powerful way. Yes, that's right. But a fabulous education. I think so. So how does this tie in? Let's talk a little bit about learning styles. Mm -hmm. what if, can you use the classical method and still tie in learning styles? Sure you can. I mean, the, the emphasis on class, classical education is always going to be a little bit easier for kids who like to read and write. Um, but any time that you're teaching a child, you can use information that you have about their learning styles to give them a better grasp on information. You know, the, the reading and the writing emphasis in classical education, again, is something that each family will use in a different way. Um, my personal opinion is that no matter what a kid's learning style is, they're going to have to learn how to read and write well if you want them to do well, not only in college but in adult life. Uh, whatever you can learn about their learning styles will obviously help you, you know, in each one of the subjects. What about the better late than early approach? What are your thoughts about that? I'm not a huge fan of it, but again, that's a really broad statement. There are a number of different ways in which better late than early can be applied. Better late than early, I think, is a fabulous principle if you're talking about putting a kid in a classroom. I think kids should be put in a classroom if they're going to go into a classroom later rather than earlier when they have the maturity to handle it. I am not a big fan of putting off basic skills such as reading, writing, grammar, mathematics until a later age. I think you really run the risk, first of all, of missing that window of opportunity with a young child where everything is interesting just because it's interesting. And secondly, I think there's a real risk that children may not, in fact, get those basic skills down uh, if you delay teaching them. Now, that is not any kind of absolute principle. Kids are different. Families are different. But if you're asking me to state a general principle, I would say that basic skills are better taught early than late. What advice would you give for the homeschooler who really likes what you're saying mm -hmm. but doesn't want to um, or have the time to spend four and a half, five hours a day in homeschooling and doesn't want to follow this approach exactly? What changes could they make to the way they homeschool their children that could still um, improve their homeschooling and help move their child towards this fabulous type of education? Well, I don't think the child is going to get a fabulous education if you're not willing to spend four and a half to five hours a day with an older child. Okay, older, I'm talking about upper junior high and high school. Um, education takes time. Thinking takes time, and it takes work. And I think a parent who is not willing with a, you know, eighth, ninth grader to put in four and a half or five hours of work with the child, um, you know, should maybe rethink their goals, frankly. Now, as far as uh, simplifying, you know, well, you know, you can simplify any of the things that we describe by choosing other curricula, um, by doing some, if not all, you know, of the writing exercises, for example, that we suggest. There are any number of ways to simplify a method once you become very familiar with it. Again, what parents should do is look at the final goal. What do I want this kid to be when I'm done? I would like this kid to be able to think. I would like to be able to, this kid to be able to write. Whatever your goals are, that's obviously where your energy goes.
I'm guessing that you're not a big fan of unschooling. Well, I think actually that unschooling can be incredibly effective if it's done by an expert. So, for example, I could unschool a child in writing because I, I, I mean, write teaching writing, that's my passion, that's what I do. I'm a writer. I know how to teach writing. I wouldn't have to use a curricula of any kind to turn out good writers with my kids because I know how to fit that learning into everyday life because I myself have a grasp of that subject. I would never, never try to unschool math or sciences, never, because I myself don't have a firm enough grasp to grab those teachable moments or, frankly, even to recognize them when they occur. So unschooling can be a good method if you're an expert in the subject that you're, that you're unschooling. I think, frankly, every parent probably does some unschooling in that area where they're the most comfortable. It, it, as an overall method, I would have hesitations just because I don't think parents are necessarily um, prepared to teach all subjects in that way. Do um, homeschooled students who follow the classical method, do they enjoy learning? Are, I mean, are kids crying at the table fighting this type of method? Are you having to force them to uh, learn this material in this way? If my kids were crying at the table, I wouldn't use this method. I can't speak for other people's children. My suspicion would be that if a child is crying at the table, it's because you're asking them to do something that is developmentally inappropriate or because they are sensing from you that if they don't get it right away, you're going to be displeased with them. Now, those are things which have nothing to do with classical education. Those are parenting issues. Those are expectation issues. Any homeschooling method can make a child cry if you're not being sensitive to that child's needs. So the classical method can still be fun and enjoyable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially with these the subject areas, you know, the science and the history. Literature, classical education gives you a lot of... Um, it gives you a lot of flexibility to stop and study those those aspects of the subject that you enjoy. Again, because the emphasis is on method rather than on a certain amount of material that has to be covered, you can let go of that time pressure. Oh, I've got to you know, I've got to get through Colonial America by Christmas, and you can think to yourself, you know, this kid is really enjoying the Middle Ages. We're just going to stay here because they're learning how to learn. That is the sort of attitude which avoids tears not only on the kids' part but on yours because you're able to think of education not as we've got to cover this certain amount of material I'm not doing a good job, but rather as, you know, every day we're learning and we are learning how to learn. So it's really more about uh, method and timing. Yes. Well, we're all familiar with your book, uh, The Well-Trained Mind, A Guide to Classical Education at Home, but I know that you've also written some other books. Mm -hmm. Can you tell, them about, tell us about them? Well, the well-educated mind um, grew out of my experience at conventions where I guess for the last, you know, four or five years I've had parents coming up to me and saying, I'm giving my kid a great education. I wish I'd had it. I wish I'd gotten this for myself. I wish I could re-educate myself in the classical tradition. And that's what the well-educated mind is about. For adults. Re-educating yourself for a grown-up in the classical tradition. Um, I've also been working on a world history series for grammar and maybe early logic stage children. Uh, it's a four-volume world history beginning with ancient times and ending with modern times, and we're working on finishing up the fourth volume now. And I'm also uh, at right now starting on writing a uh, general interest for grown-ups four-volume world history, which is going to be published by Norton. So that's, that's a long-term project. History of the Universe, you've written the story of the world. That's right. And the well-trained, the well-educated well adults. Mm-hmm. Well, that's excellent. Do you have any other uh, resources that you could recommend to people who want to learn more about the classical method and about some recommendations that you make? 
Um, well, our website, which is welltrainedminds.com, uh, has not only more essays about classical education and links to other resources, but also message boards, which I think are incredibly useful for homeschoolers because when you see what other people are using, what books they're using, what curricula they're using, what they're talking about and how they're doing it, it broadens your horizon so much. That's what makes you think, wait, there's not just one way to do this. Um, look at all these different parents, all with the same goal, but all using different books and different materials. And so I would think that would be a good place to start for someone who uh, someone who is interested in this method. Good. Welltrainedmind.com. Mm-hmm. No punctuation, just welltrainedmind.com. How do you feel about Hirsch's work, what every second grader should know, what every third grader should know? I think that has, um, it, it's certainly, those are useful books. I have them. I use them for reference. I don't make them the center of my curriculum because I do feel that his emphasis is a little bit more on, you know, let's let's master this certain amount of material. That's not bad, but I think it's limited. If I had to choose, now you don't have to choose between method and content. I mean, to say my emphasis is on teaching children how to learn doesn't at all remove the fact that, yes, like Hirsch, I think there are certain things every kid should know. Every kid should you know, know what the Constitution says. Every kid should know when our country was founded. As far as I'm concerned, everybody should know what the Magna Carta is and why that was signed. Things like that, everyone needs to know. But I, I would not choose as my main method um, this sort of, well, you've got to learn everything in this book, and then you're educated sort of approach. That, would, that wouldn't be my preferred you know, primary emphasis. Well, Susan, we have 15 minutes left in the call. Uh, we have over 125 people on the call. I want to open it up, but um, audience will have to really watch the noise level here. So uh, if you would, please, uh, before I open up the call, press star six, and this will mute your phone. And then come out one at a time, ask a quick question. Susan will give a quick answer, and that way we can take as many questions as possible. So again, it is star six to mute your phone, star six to unmute it to ask your question, and then go back into mute mode. And let's see how the noise level is. If you are on a cell phone, uh, and we may have some or noises in the background, it is probably your cell phone that is causing that. So just to let you know ahead of time, uh, if you hear a noise, um, uh, please do us the favor and hang up and then call back in on a landline. Okay, folks, we're talking with Susan Weisbauer about class education and looking forward to taking your questions. Here we go. And you'll know just take one question at a time, so stay in mute mode until that question is done. So and go ahead, and then I will repeat your question, and then I'll go into conference mode. Ready? Susan, I have a question. Are you familiar with Thomas Jefferson Education? I Susan, couldn't let me that. Repeat. I'm sorry. Susan, let me repeat that question for the recording. She said, are you familiar with Thomas Jefferson Education? Uh, I would say familiar, but not extensively familiar. Certainly not familiar enough to criticize it. In my reading of it, it seems that um, we're very much on the same page. If you want specific uh, reactions, I don't have any at this point, but if you want to send us an email um, just at uh, webmaster at welltrainedmind.com, I'd be happy to have a look at it and try to come up with some more uh, specific reactions. Thank you. So your email address is webmaster mm-hmm. at welltrainedmind.com. That's right. Okay, let's take another question. Question from Canada. 
It's regarding uh, sight reading versus phonics reading. Mm -hmm. So my question is, I have uh, a nine-year-old built an avid reader. Uh, phonics works for him. I have a seven-year-old whose phonics is not working for him. So is it true that kids can just be a sight reader? Have you, have you run into this where phonics is just not going to click for them? Susan, let me repeat okay, that question. Sir. Her question is, what are your thoughts about comparing phonics versus sight reading? I would, I would, well, first of all, let me say, yes, that's absolutely possible. I have, I have a, uh, this will be quick. I had a neighbor who had a kid who could not learn phonics. This was a child who at two would put together puzzles by turning them over and looking at the shapes on the back because the pictures were distracting. There are kids who have such a strong visual memory that learning by sight really is going to be the best way for them. I think that's fairly rare. So my impulse would always be to go with the phonics first because I think that is a much more common way of learning. Um, there are going to be kids that that doesn't work for because kids are, you know, infinitely <laughs> variable. And I do think with a child like that, you're going to have the challenge of teaching them how to spell, and you're going to probably want to look at a program like Spelling Power, which really emphasizes teaching them to picture the word in their mind. That's a kid who is not going to do well with a spelling program that teaches them to sound out the words and listen. You want something that teaches them, visualize this, trace it in the air, then put it down. So, you know, if that works for this kid, that's great. Um, and I would maybe look at spelling power to supplement that. Thank you. Next question, please. Hello, Susan. Hello. Hey. Hear you. Hi. I actually have um, a couple of things. I went to the one of the conferences that you spoke at this summer, and I appreciated some of the things that you said. I bought your book. I also bought the World Series, um, the story of the world, mm -hmm. and I thought I would start in September, mm -hmm. um, but I started to read it myself, and I decided to dive right in. I, I, I started to read my eight-year-old. I have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old, Okay. so I can appreciate where you're at, but I thought it was going to take six months to get through this. My son read it in two weeks, <laughs> and I don't know what to do. <laughs> And I couldn't, I, we, we went on vacation, he took it on vacation, and he read it on the way. I, I don't know, I, I just said to myself, I can't believe this. So, and the worksheets are wonderful, but I don't think he's really ready to do this. Let me help with that noise. That noise is a cell phone. So, um, someone, if you would, um, you'll have to call back in on the landline and really watch the noise. So, uh, her comment, let me repeat it, Susan, is that uh, she bought the Story of the World series, which you have written, and uh, thinking that she would use it as the curriculum for a semester, and apparently her son dove right into it and finished the whole darn book. <laughs> and then you provide worksheets with the right. book as well. So I think her question is also, what does she do now? What do I do now? I, mean, I would say that, first of all, it's a wonderful problem to have. Um, I think you've got a couple of options. One is um, give him volume two and say, here, <laughs> now we'll do this one. And uh, if he gets all the way through all four volumes, then give him another history of the world. You know, give him a Van Loon's History of Mankind or, you know, another history of the world. The other option, and this would be the one I'd be inclined to take, would be to say, okay, you know, now you've read this whole thing. That's great. You've done the overview. Now we're going to go to the library and we're going to check out some books that deal with the topics in each chapter. And let's read those as well in the same order. And that would help him to go a little bit deeper. But you know, either of those options would be fine. Either one of them would be fine. There are so many good library books uh, for kids on each one of the topics covered by the chapters that I don't think you ever need to feel like, oh, we're done and we don't have anything more to do. Um, the library is your best friend. Susan, you entered college at 17. You were obviously a gifted uh, child, and now you're a gifted adult. Do you 
think that you would have turned out gifted if you had not been educated in this classical method? Uh, I don't do hypothetical questions. I have no idea. I can tell you that the students that I have in, as freshmen in college who are very average students would not necessarily be average if they had been educated properly to write and to think. They would be above average. How gifted they would be, who can say, but they'd be a whole lot better off than they are now. And we interviewed um, some experts in gifted homeschooling yesterday, and they suggested your uh, work and this method for gifted homeschoolers. Mm, well, it depends, too, what area they're gifted in. I mean, I think it would be especially appropriate for a student who is verbally gifted. Okay. Let's, uh, callers, let's take another question. If you would, please, make sure that you are in mute mode, star six, or you can push the mute button on your phone. Okay, I've got a question. Children who are very good at memorizing facts, very easy to them. They can remember the dates and the facts. I have other children who are big picture people, and the facts are meaningless to them, and they really don't care about them. And I'm wondering in that grammar stage, when it's you know, trying to get those facts down, how to teach to that child. She said that she has um, some of her children are kind of fact-oriented children, mm -hmm. fact-oriented learners, and others are a more big-picture students. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the grammar stage, how do you adapt your uh, teaching to um, utilize their strengths? Um, I'm wondering if maybe I could have an example. I'm not totally sure what the caller is asking, and I could not hear her at all. I know, darn it. Um, it's, it's a tribute to you that there are so many people on the call. Um, hmm. Okay, well, let me, I'll, I'll take a shot in the dark with that. And, and I'm sorry, caller, I did not hear anything that you said, so I'm totally going on this on, on the, the paraphrase here. Um, with a grammar stage child, I think you very much teach to their strengths. If you've got a kid who is very fact-oriented, meaning that they like the detail and they like the memorization, absolutely don't fight it. A kid who is that way will remain that way in the logic stage, but it will be simpler when they're a little bit older to teach them a little bit more big-picture thinking. That's partly a maturity issue. A kid who is a big-picture thinker and who is impatient with details is often a child that we call gifted. It's kind of an unfair label, I think, because they have gone on into that logic stage early, and they are very anxious to find connections. And they're very, they're, they're getting, they get impatient with the details, impatient with the repetition, and they want to do the big things. And, you know, I'm a big thinker myself. That's why I keep, you know, writing these history of the whole world sort of projects. And I think that's a wonderful quality, but your job as the parent is to say to them, this is great, but you have to do a certain amount of focusing on facts. You know, you have to do a certain amount of drill, and you are working against their natural tendency when you are trying to get them to focus on details. I mean, these are the kids who will talk forever about some great big idea, but when they write, they don't use any punctuation or capital letters because they're thinking too big to pay attention to any of the facts. And your challenge as a parent is to bring them back down to the detail level, but not all the time in every subject. You pick certain subjects, you know, each day that this is going to be your battleground and you're going to say to this kid, look, this particular thing, you've got to look at the details. You've got to look at the punctuation. You've got to look at the spelling. You've got to do all the steps in the math program in, you know, for 15 minutes on this subject today. Teach them how to focus on those details for short periods of time every day. 
and that will improve their grasp on the big picture. And it's tough because these kids, they, they don't like to slow down. Um, but that's what you do. Small for a you know, short period each day is when you focus on that. And again, I'm sorry if I'm not answering your question at all because I'm really not totally sure what it was. But again, if you want to email us at well-trained mind, the webmaster at welltrainedmind.com, I'll do my best to do a better job. Excellent, Susan. Thank you. And the operator uh, went in and cleared up some of the noise for us, too. Very good. So we have time for another question. Susan. Hi. Hi. I have a question about the transitioning from grammar stage to um, the logic stage. Yes. There. That's much better. Um, do you find that the transition is difficult between, you know, going from fact memorization and understanding um, and going into a logic state and starting to critically think about things. Do you find that that transition is difficult or does it come naturally to them because of their development? Um, you know, it, it, I'm sorry, did you want to repeat the question? No, in fact, that was excellent. We okay, that, that's a really interesting question and, you know, not to be too vague here, but it depends on the kid and not to be too sexist here either, but so far, not my experience, not only with, well, my older three are all boys, but also the feedback that I get from parents is that, especially in literature and grammar and writing and such, it ten boys tend to make the transition into the logic stage a little slower than girls. I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, may have something to do with the lack of confidence. I don't really know why it is. A lot of times, kids will will kind of want to camp out on that fourth grade level. They want a workbook, you know. They want to have something that's very well-defined, very concrete, very simple. They want to look at the information, spit the answer back out, and that be it. That's fairly common. And again, you may have a kid who has that attitude in one subject but not in another. You may have a kid who is making this very natural, curious, inquisitive um, transition in a math or science area and is really just really wants just the facts, ma'am, when they're you know doing their literature. They don't want to ask questions about it. They just want to do it and get it done. And your, your job as a parent is to gently, gently pull them along into that logic stage. But it's very common. It's very common for them to need a little bit of pulling, a little bit of modeling, a little bit of help. Listen, it's a difficult transition. In many ways, it's easier just to stay on that grammar level. It's easier just to spit the answers back out. Human nature being what it is, everybody wants to take the easier path, you know. Um, if it were a totally natural and easy transition, we wouldn't see high school students coming out of high school as unable to think as they are. They would naturally make the transition without any help, and they're not getting any help. So they don't make it often. So, I mean, that should encourage you, if you're having a child who is sort of, you know, camping out in fourth grade um, and saying, no, give me my workbook, give me my fill-in-the-blank, that's so much easier. It's normal, and it's, it's, it's difficult to pull them all along into the logic stage, and you get a little bit of resistance, and, you know, you got to pull them and then back off and pull them and then back off, but it, it's worth making the effort. And because a child resists you, doesn't necessarily mean they're not ready to go into the logic stage. It just means, you know, they need a little encouragement. They need to be uh, pushed across the bridge towards maturity a little bit more. Thank you, Susan. We have time for another question. Hello? Yes. Hello, we can hear you. Hi, wonderful. I have a question. Yes. I have a, a nine-year-old girl, so of course I think it's phenomenal. <laughs> I've been extremely blessed. And she is excelling in every single area except writing. 
Ah, yeah. See, just the the actual act of, of forming letters mm -hmm. is very hard for her, and I'm thinking about teaching her to type. Yeah, so that hopefully she can get those thoughts on paper. That wonderful orator. She can narrate as the day goes on. If the mechanical, if the mechanical writing is the difficulty, get a typing program. Do not let that stand in her way. I, I think your instinct there is absolutely correct. I would say I would keep on with her doing a handwriting program, you know, because those muscles, listen, kids find motor coordination and what they can do in their minds. It's normal for those two things to be developmentally years apart. And it's so important not to frustrate their mental development because their hand hurts, you know. So absolutely. Teach her how to type, but get a handwriting program. Make sure she does, you know, 10 minutes of handwriting every day. And I think I would have her do an occasional handwritten exercise as well. You know, a kid who writes two or three sentences by hand every day, that kid is developing handwriting muscles, and eventually it will get easier. A kid who is having to write a page every day is not developing handwriting materials. They're just getting progressively more frustrated. So think of it as you would, you know, jogging or swimming or something, and work gradually on those hand muscles, and in the meantime, absolutely, teach her how to type so she can get her thoughts out. Thank you. I opened the call back up again. I have a question about foreign language. When should we teach Spanish and Latin, and could they be taught together? When should you teach Spanish and Latin, and could they be taught together? Okay, here's my, here's my... Susan? Yes? Susan, let me repeat that again. Sure. Her question was, what about foreign languages? Uh, can you uh, teach Spanish and Latin together? Um, yes. You know, the human brain has a tremendous ability to hold languages apart. Um, it's very, very rare, actually, that a kid will mix up languages. Um, I don't think that's something that you need to worry about. Here's my, my you know, 10-second speech on foreign languages. It, it is, in my opinion, always better to teach the spoken language first because... The younger a kid is, when you know he or she learns to speak a foreign language, the more likely that child is to be fluent. The reason why we don't necessarily recommend that in the well-trained mind is because uh, it doesn't matter what program you use. You can use Rosetta Stone, you can use the Learnables, you know, you can use PowerGlide. It doesn't matter unless someone comes and speaks to you two or three times a week in that language. You're not going to develop conversational fluency, and it, there's going to be a certain amount of frustration. If you have someone who can come and speak to you two or three times a week, then I think you should do the spoken language, do it for a year, and then introduce Latin the year after that. If you don't have someone who can go and come and do that, I would be inclined to go ahead and do the Latin first because they're still getting the advantage of learning the different forms, the different shape of a foreign language while they're young. And then I would look, you know, try as best I could to get them eventually into a situation where they're able to, uh, able to practice that conversational, conversational speech as well. Well, Susan, this has all been excellent, excellent information. Could you please give us all of your contact information one more time for people who came in late on the call? Sure. Our website is welltrainedmind.com, welltrainedmind.com, no punctuation. And what do you have on the website? We have um, essays about classical education, an introduction, you know, sort of what is classical education. We have book lists. We have, we have this great section of the website. I like it called A Day in the Life, where people record how their, well, how an actual day went, um, each subject, each kid. We have message boards, um, just support for people who are interested in finding out more about this. And what is the name of the books that you have written? The Well-Trained Mind, A Guide to Classical Education at Home, 
and it's um, published by Norton, and it's, you know, available pretty much at any bookstore. And? Oh, and The, well, sorry, the Well-Educated Mind, uh, A Guide to the Classical Education You Never Had, which is the, the book for grown-ups who want to re-educate themselves in the classical tradition. And, of course, one of our listeners mentioned the Story of the World series. Yes, and the Story of the World series um, is a world history for children, and uh, it's a four-volume world history series, and you can find more about that either from welltrainedmind.com or by going to our business website, which is peacehillpress.net, peace like war and peace, peacehillpress.net. Do you have a newsletter that people can subscribe to? We have an online newsletter. Mm -hmm. They can uh, enter their email addresses, and they'll be notified when new material is put online, and that is a private mailing list. We would never give your email address to anybody. Excellent. That's terrific information. Thank you again, Susan. Sure appreciate your time. 